0: in our Bibles to Amos chapter 9, Amos 9, the return of the king in judgment and blessing. So we have come to the climactic chapter, the final chapter of uh, this great uh, prophecy. And as we come to the last chapter, we might expect to find that some of the themes that have been present in Amos will be brought uh to the fore again as Amos signs off. And that is in fact what happens. Uh, Amos's favorite image for the Lord is the lion. The lion that roars from Zion. Uh, the lion uh, that is great and that has come, at, and the lion that has power has come to assert his rule over the earth. The plot line is that. The rightful king of Israel has been rejected. A false king uh, sought to exile the lion of Zion. He led the people uh, away and brought them into a fake, a sham religion and consoled them with false assurance. But the lion roared through his prophet and warns of his return and judgment and blessing. And so we meet with uh, these themes that we have met with already in Amos in this last chapter. The theme of judgment, uh, the theme of God's detesting all kinds of hypocrisy, uh, God detesting the religious facade that hides uh, an empty husk, uh, the profession of religion without the accompanying concern for justice and mercy, all of which will meet with God's wrath. God comes now to show that wrath, that judgment. Uh, The chapter is composed of two very different prophecies. We have judgment uh, and wrath. And then we have a prophecy of blessing, one of the most beautiful promises of the renewal at the end times that will come with the return of our king. Uh, It is, in effect, God's answer to Habakkuk's prayer uh, O Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. First of all, a little bit of scene setting. Uh, To see how uh, Israel has arrived at this point, we go back to an earlier king, uh, an infamous king who was called Jeroboam. Not this Jeroboam, but Jeroboam the first. 180 years before the time of Amos in the year 931-930 B.C., Jeroboam I led off the ten northern tribes of Israel in a schism from Judah and Benjamin. And the schism came about, the separation came about, when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, refused to negotiate easier terms on the people. His father Solomon had had many of them in uh, pressed labor, and the people complained about the load, and uh, Rehoboam refused to uh, negotiate terms, and Jeroboam led a breakaway. Now, the breakaway was a popular revolt, but Jeroboam uh, soon realized that there would be a temptation over time uh, to look back on the good old days, and especially if the people were continually making pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to the temple in Jerusalem. And to sort out this this situation, he undertook the the project, uh, which would be known later on, uh, under shorthand in the Bible, as the sins of Jeroboam. What Jeroboam did was so notoriously bad that it became known simply as the sins of Jeroboam. And these were to set up uh, alternative altars. God had made clear to his people that he was to be worshipped at the one place, that Zion was his throne. And Jeroboam, uh, in order to keep his people on site, set up shrines at uh, Samaria and at Dan and uh, set up uh, false altars there. He established a feast, uh, which in 1 Kings 12.32 tells us that it was like the feast that was in Judah. And we're told that Jeroboam I himself officiated at the altar. Uh, 1 Kings uh, 12 is very insistent about Jeroboam taking on a priestly role. Uh, in the following chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Kings, uh, a man of Judah comes up to uh, confront him. And we're told Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. Jeroboam, the king himself, this was a priestly role he had taken on. And it was all fake. Everything was a sham. It was a sham altar. It was a sham religion. And it was a sham king who had simply made this whole elaborate fake in order to prop up his own political interests. And the years have rolled on, and the country has become accustomed, that is, northern Israel has become accustomed to its refuge in this false religion and the shrines at Dan and Bethel and Samaria. And now another man from Judah comes north, This man this time is called Amos from Tekoa. And now we see, ironically, uh, another king called Jeroboam uh, taking his stand by the altar. The make-believe religion that was started by Jeroboam, the first has rolled on over the years, giving the people more and more false security about everything being all right with them. And now, in this last chapter, in chapter 9 of his prophecy, Amos sees right through the sham to the reality. And he sees the true king standing by the altar. I saw the sovereign one who had taken his stand by the altar. The false king is replaced by the true king. The human king is replaced by the divine king. The king who used this altar to prop up this false <coughs> Religion that was in his own interests is now replaced by the king who has come to tear it down. When Samson pulled the temple of Dagon down, you remember in the story he, he positions himself between the two pillars and he pushes against them and the temple is brought down uh, by pressure from the bottom. But now the king Uh, has returned. The temple or the the altar will fall uh, when he comes from above. He will rain down crushing blows on the capitals, driving them down on the threshold of the building until the whole uh, edifice shakes and collapses on the occupants' heads. The true king has come in judgment. So we have this picture, this vision of the sovereign one at the altar, and the altar brought down over the heads of the wicked, rebellious people. And then we have the words of judgment. This is the way we have it in Amos. A vision he sees, and then the word of explanation, the oracle of judgment. And we're familiar with the idea that judgment, uh, in near history, would be the coming of a foreign army. The Assyrians would come uh, in a relatively short period of time and they would overwhelm uh, northern Israel. And they would lead some of them away captive and they would intermingle other captive races with them uh, to produce what we now, what was later called the Samaritans. But it's also a picture, uh, a limited picture of what it will be like when the king comes in judgment and his throne is set up and Christ divides. people into the lost and the saved. So what we have here uh, is uh, an insight into the dreadful aspect of the last day when Jesus comes. What will the judgment be like for those who are not saved? Well, Amos tells us that the wrath of God will be inescapable. There will be no way to escape God's judgment on that day. Uh, This is the the great truth that's underlined uh, in verses 2 to 4. Now, uh, straight away, let us say that the the great lie that uh, unbelievers want to believe is that somehow they can escape judgment. Uh, One of the follies uh, in this thinking uh, is connected with the whole idea of of assisted suicide. People take their lives uh, to escape when life becomes unbearable, sometimes uh, in the form of euthanasia because of physical or mental distress. Or because um, the consequences of bad choices catch up with people. And they can't face these consequences. And there is this belief that suicide is a way out. It's the ultimate pain reliever. It brings, so they think, a nothingness, an end of all experience. So there's no anguish, no accounting, uh, no punishment. Escape from God's eternal judgment. Amos says, not at all. God will reach down into the very grave itself. There will be no escape through death from that judgment. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. And these verses here, uh, where God is seen to be everywhere, he's in the heavens, he's down in Sheol, uh, he's on Mount Carmel, uh, they, they bring Psalm 139 to mind, don't they? Psalm 139, the omnipresence of God. Where can I go that I would escape you? Psalm 139, you're everywhere." And And for us as believers, when we sing one, Psalm 139, it's a psalm of great comfort. God is always with me. Tremendous thought. But for the unbeliever, it's a terrifying thought. That God is inescapable. They cannot flee from him. And even death cannot uh, deliver them from the hand of God. Nor is there any military or political escape from God. In exile, they are not safe. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. God is sovereignly in control of foreign armies, they do his bidding so that in exile his people will not escape judgment there is no escape from the judge of all the earth I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good so judgment's inescapable and then we have a couple of verses which are a different literary form from the rest they are poetry verses 5 and 6 and we have these little uh, hymn-like portions in Amos or doxologies and this is the third of them and they they give praise to some attribute of almighty god and here the attribute of god that is is worshiped is his mighty power his mighty power god is the great creator and his creative power can come in either blessing or curse. It's like the sun comes in blessing or curse. The sun is a great blessing. Uh, we love the sun. It makes us feel good. We love the sunshine bathing in on us. Uh, it creates vitamin D. It gives us healthy bodies. It lifts our spirits. But the sun also comes and it parches the ground, it dries out the crops, it brings skin cancer and so on. And so, with God's creative power, He is the Lord Almighty who touches the earth and it melts. At the Exodus, His power uh, is shown to His people for good. He parts the waters of the sea. But equally, He can call the waters of the sea to flood the land. And what Amos is saying is that God not only promises to judge, but He is able to fulfill the threat. He is the Almighty God, and He will come in power in judgment. The Oracle of Judgment carries on in verse 7, and this time the the message is that Israel are not to think that because they're Israel, they will thereby escape. They're not in a special relationship with God simply because of nationality. Aren't you Israelites not to me the same as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Uh, Cush is Ethiopia, and and for Israel, uh, Ethiopia is an exotic land It's far away. And they are no different, in a sense, to Ethiopia. They can't claim any special favor simply because they are Israelites. They were a chosen people because it was to them God had revealed himself. It was them that had been uh, the receivers of the law of God. But the covenant was always that they were to have faith in God. It would be a commitment through faith that would bind them to God. We're not to think that in the Old Testament, people were saved because they were ethnic Israelites. And in the New Testament, people are saved because we've got faith in Jesus. People are saved by faith in the promises of God in old and new covenants yes Israel had been brought out of Egypt but didn't God bring the Philistines from and the Arameans from Kir? God is directing the paths of all the nations now Amos is not contradicting what the rest of the Old Testament says about God being in a covenant relationship with the people of Israel Because, as we just said, that covenant implied faith in the promises. So, you have this people, Israel, and within that circle of Israelites, you have a smaller circle, a subset of true Israelites, men and women and young people who truly believe the promises. And Paul picks up that uh, in Romans, Romans, uh, where he says, uh, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. God is absolutely clear He will come in judgment upon the people who have not had faith in him, who have wandered away to this fake religion and have false assurance that everything is right with them because they've gone through the various hoops. And then there's this wonderful word of hope. The end of verse 8. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. We've got this picture now of a remnant, a minority living amongst the big group, and we have the picture of a sieve. God is going to take this great uh, farmer's sieve, and he's going to to have the, the people in the sieve, as it were, and he's going to shake the sieve. Uh, perhaps the, the, the historical events about to happen are going to be a wake-up call to some of his people. But at any rate, the, the pebbles are going to be taken out from the sieve, And only the, the, the pure grain will pass through. None of those who are unfaithful will escape judgment. And Amos gives us an identifying mark. Uh, who are the people who will be judged? Who are the people who don't show faith? They are, he says in verse 10, those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. They're people who are complacent. They don't believe in God's threatenings. God, if He's there at all, people say, He's a God of love. He's bound to uh, overlook our failures, our little shortcomings. Not so. Amos is warning only those who believe in God's justice and mercy, who believe that they are truly under the wrath of God, will in fact flee to God to save them, place their trust in his mediator and enter eternal life. And the number that would be saved in Amos' day was a little part of the larger whole. And it's always that way. Uh, Jesus speaks to his people and calls them a little flock. Right through the Bible, we have this doctrine of the remnant, that the true people of God will be a remnant of the larger part. <coughs> uh, in 1864, they, there's a, a hymn writer with a, a glorious name, Thomas Hornblower Gill, uh, was on tour in northern Italy, and he, he made a visit that so impressed him that he, he later uh, composed a hymn uh, based on his, his encounter with a group of people called the Valdensians. And they were followers of the 12th century reformer Peter Waldo, a merchant from uh, Lyon. And he had sought to, to call out uh, the people of God away from the, the worldly and superstitious church of the day uh, back to uh, biblical Christianity. And these Waldensians denied the power of the Mass, they denied the existence of purgatory, uh, they preached the gospel in the language of the people, and they took seriously the call of the gospel to live a holy life. Uh, so it's remarkable, they were uh, centuries before the Reformation, they were Protestants living in this little enclave in Italy. And just as Amos. Uh, had this real opposition from the establishment in his day. Remember, uh, in chapter 7, Amaziah, the the priest who tells Amos to clear off and go back to his own country. Uh, Well, the the church in the day of the Waldensians persecuted them. And they had to just get out of their way. They they went into uh, remote parts of uh, mountainous northern Italy. And Gill was tremendously impressed during his visit that this remnant had survived and had survived down through the centuries, uh, from the 12th to the 19th centuries and even into the present time, uh, this little remnant of Protestants in uh, a dark Roman Catholic uh, area. And he composed a hymn, uh, uh, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in every generation. God is a remnant in Israel. And brothers and sisters, we are a remnant in our own day. Look, first of all, at the, at the statistics. The statistics tell us that only seven out of 100 people in Scotland will have been worshipping today. Now, that's all shades of, 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 uh, of belief for none. If we're realistic, the number of Christians in Scotland is probably two to three percent. For every hundred people you come across, possibly only two of them will be Christians in modern-day Scotland. Our society has turned its back on God. It's declaring, like the people in Amos's day, disaster will not overtake us or meet us. And One of the the really practical lessons that we must take from uh, this part of the prophecy is that that you and I have got to live like a remnant. We have to recognize that we are not a party to the the outlook, the, the beliefs and the practices of the wider society around us, and we're called by God to step apart from that society. And that goes for for all of us at whatever stage you're at. Now, if you're at school, some of you are at school and will be going to school in the coming week. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you love Jesus, it's a lonely thing sometimes to be a Christian in school. I can remember when I was uh, a young Christian in school, uh, going way, way back. And it was lonely then until the Lord drew more people and uh, there were more Christians in the school but for many of you it will be a lonely thing to be a Christian in school and we're called to be different uh, to be that little flock and then when we go up to college and university there are even more pressures uh, to, to live for pleasure and to experiment with, with things and to, to live the lifestyle that people who don't love Jesus are living and again we're called out to be God's remnant to be different and to endure at times the loneliness that comes our way because we're a remnant, we're a little flock. And along with that, all the promises and all the blessings that go with it. God is preparing a remnant for himself when he comes again because, and this is the second part of our chapter, he's coming in blessing He's coming in blessing for those who are found faithful at his return. It will not be a time of fear or dread. It will be a time of great assurance, of renewal, of joy in the Lord. The king is coming uh, as king in three different ways. He's coming, first of all, as the second David. He's coming as David's greater son. Uh, We have this picture of the the tent of David uh, having fallen down, of David's building being in ruins, and the king is coming to set up again the tent. The king is coming to repair the building. The scriptures testify that the Messiah will be of David's line. Jesus comes, uh, and he is of David's line and born in David's royal city in Bethlehem. David is the great king because David was a warrior king and he extended the boundaries of Israel. Uh, the surrounding nations were brought into his kingdom. It continued under Solomon. Uh, it achieved its, its greatest uh, size under the reign of David and his son. This king is the king Uh, who brings in the nations not with a sword but with the gospel he's the prince of peace and he brings in the gentiles along with the jews and so we find uh, this verse about uh, david's tent being quoted in the the jerusalem council when uh, the the brothers are brought a report by barnabas and paul about what God has been doing amongst the nations. God has been showing great miracles. People have been converted, unmistakably converted, brought to faith in Jesus as Messiah. And James, after hearing the report, gets up and quotes these verses from Amos. Brothers, he says, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the, people, from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. And it's Amos that he's referring to. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who bear my name says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. The king returns. The, the king, who is David's greater son, uh, brings the nations under the one tent. Um, those of us that will be going to Keswick in the summertime, one of the lovely things about Keswick is uh, it's, it's a big tent, of course, the meeting place. And when you go into the meetings, uh, you go under this, uh, this text that declares, all one in Christ Jesus that's essentially what Amos is saying here. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus is bringing in people of all different nations under the one tent. And it's a wonderful thing to see that manifested in the local church, to see people of all different backgrounds come together under the one Savior. <clears throat> the king is coming as the second David. The King's coming as the second Adam. The king will not only rule the nations he'll rule creation when the first Adam sinned uh, not only was human nature corrupted but the environment we live in came under the, the sin the, the misery of sin it lost its original potency for life and for fruitfulness it became subject to futility uh, its original productivity that Adam uh, had uh, experienced in Eden Uh, was opposed now by thorns and thistles. It takes immense labor to harness the energies of our earth. When the king returns, when Jesus returns, creation will be renewed. And we have this beautiful picture uh, that Amos paints for us of a a super-abundant earth pulsating with life, overflowing with fruitfulness. The, the most barren parts of the, of the earth, the mountaintops with corn wafting on the mountaintops and, and wine flowing down the sides. Now, this isn't just a metaphor for gospel revival, although uh, it can be taken as, as, uh, as what happens when God moves by his Holy Spirit. It's not just a picture of modern-day Israel's Productivity uh, since the Jews resettled uh, Israel, although that's undeniable. It's a reminder that our future home will be a renewal of this present earth, that we are destined not to live in a, a kind of ethereal, uh, kind of uh, spiritualized environment, but it will be a new heaven and new earth that God will reign in. One day, uh, the goodness that has been uh, tarnished by sin uh, will be seen in glory. The creation will erupt with new life. It will be a place of unimaginable beauty and fertility and pleasure. We'll be to spiritualize away uh, <coughs> verses that speak of what God clearly promises uh, in not least the New Testament. William Cowper, the poet, uh, has a, a lovely uh, poem, The Task, that describes uh, what Amos has here. This is, this is what he says The groans of nature in this nether world, which heaven has heard for ages, have an end, foretold by prophets and by poets' son, whose fire was kindled at the prophet's lamp, the time of rest, the promised Sabbath comes. Rivers of gladness water all the earth and clothe all climes with beauty. The reproach of barrenness is past. The fruitful field laughs with abundance and the land, once lean or fertile only in its own disgrace, exults to see its thistly curse repealed. The various seasons woven into one and that one season an eternal spring the garden fears no blight and needs no fence, for there is none to covet. All are full. The lion and the leopard and the bear graze with the fearless flocks. One song employs all nations, and all cry, Worthy the lamb, for he was slain for us. The dwellers in the vales and on the rocks shout to each other, and the mountain tops from distant mountains catch the flying joy, till nation After nation is taught the strain, earth rolls the rapturous Hosanna round. God has a wonderful future for our environment, and we are therefore called to care for it, not by deifying it as the humanists do, but by respecting it as God's gift. The king will return as the second David, the second Adam. And he'll return, uh, finally, as the king of the covenant. He's the king who comes to to keep the covenant promise. In Deuteronomy 24 and 25, we have covenant cursing and blessing. And the the curses of the covenant are very often uh, what we experience in day-to-day life. We do not enter into the fruit of our labors. There's a futility to life. Everything seems so pointless. You'll build a house, but you'll not live in it. You'll plant a vineyard, but you'll not even begin to enjoy its fruit. Ah, verses 13 31, chapter 28. You'll sow much in the field, but you'll harvest little. Locusts will devour it. You'll plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you'll not drink the wine or harvest the grapes, because... Worms will eat them, verse 38. One of the judgments of God and those who resist him and who think that they're immune from calamity is to deny people the enjoyment of their labors. Everything in the end will seem utterly pointless because hard work never yields its rewards. But the blessing is the reverse of that. The blessing is fulfillment. The blessing is endless satisfaction. And so we close with this this picture of not just a renewed creation, but a people in the land. A people who are ever blessed because they are settled. God has placed them down, and they are in a settled, assured uh, enjoyment of all of his blessings. The ones who enjoy this are those who have fled to Jesus for safety. The ones who will be far away in endless loss will be the ones who said calamity will never overtake me. And brothers tonight, if we are in Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus tonight, this is future. This is the future for all who to Jesus have fled for safety. He's coming one day to receive us. He will gather us together with all his people from all the nations and he will settle us in a new environment. The Lion King will be your joy throughout all the ages. We will lack nothing We will want no more than what we are given. And the wonderful thing is we have God's word for it. This is a sure promise. And just to underline the absolute trustworthiness of this blessed hope, Amos signs off. Says the Lord, your God. This is the word of Yahweh he is always true to his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious hope that we have as Christians. We thank you that uh, though uh, our King is one who causes the earth to tremble, uh, who comes in judgment, we thank you that our King is one who has already uh, been on a cross for us and borne our guilt and shame. Thank you that he is coming to renew all things. And we look forward, Lord, to that wonderful day. We pray, Lord, that each one of us, because we have hope in Christ, will also have confidence that we will be gathered together with all God's people on his return. May it be so, Lord, to your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.